great to be back with you. Jennifer and I and my family have been gone for the last three weeks. We enjoyed some downtime this summer in the triple-digit heat. We had one week where we got away to the mountains of Colorado, and that was really fun and uh, refreshing. Uh, I'm really thankful for this church and for this staff team. Um, If you're wondering where Father David is, we're not trying to be gone on the same Sundays. Uh, We really like each other. He is actually back in Ohio. Uh, There's a memorial service for a family member for Kendallin's family. And so they're back with family this weekend uh, for that service. Uh, But so thankful to be back this morning uh, with you. Uh, The Christian life is, it's really personal, but it's, it's congregational. It's communal. Uh, I read recently that in a big city, everybody's looking for a small village of people to be known. And uh, the Christian life is meant to be lived out with brothers and sisters that know you and that you know them. And we're learning to walk together as disciples. And it's a joy to be back and um, excited to, to lean in this morning. The green, as we've said during the summertime, the green is for growth. It's uh, the season of ordinary time. I like to call it kingdom tide what it means to walk into the reality of God's kingdom together. And this takes sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to what he said and what he did and what he taught his disciples because it's, it's news to all of us. It's, it's really surprising the way in which he invites us uh, to contrast the ways of our own culture with the way of Jesus. If you consider yourself a disciple, we've already seen over these last few weeks that, that we have a totally different understanding of freedom. Uh, that he's teaching us to walk in a way of, of not just being freed from things, but being freed for service to others. He's teaching us how to be a neighbor to all. Father David covered that. Uh, just last week, Jared Grice looked at how, how do we pray? How do we live a life in God's presence and prayer? And today, uh, you, if you heard the three readings, uh, you probably have a bit of a guess of what the homily the sermon's going to be about. Today, what we see is that a disciple of Jesus Christ has experienced such a change in their life that it changes their relationship to their stuff. That when you get into a real relationship with Jesus Christ, it changes your relationship to money and possessions. Now, um, the logic of the argument that we're about to look at that Jesus taught is, uh, is not really hard to follow. In fact, um, even outside of the New Testament, there are famous parables and stories that teach us this truth that, that really the abundance of a person's life can't be measured just in their possessions. I'm thinking of probably the most well-known parable in our culture, which would be Ebenezer Scrooge. It has nothing to do with the New Testament, and yet it it tells this sort of same logic of like the sadness of a life that gets to the end, and it's all been about accumulation, and actually he was really empty and void. Uh, So it's not hard to follow the logic, but but I want to tell you that there's a supernatural gift available to us that Jesus names that's not found in the parables of our culture and in our time that I want us to see and to discover Um, Jesus talked more about this issue than he did any other ethical issue. That's a pretty bold claim. Jesus talked more about this issue, our relationship to stuff and possessions and money, than he did any other ethical issue. Now, in the present moment, uh, our culture is really hyped up on human sexuality. And, And oftentimes, the church has a lot to say about the right relationship to our bodies. And this is important. We ought to care about this. But we often will not check and keep in check the thing that Jesus talked more passionately about 
and more often, which was our relationship to our stuff. Culturally speaking, though, I have a bit of a hard task because even those of you that are here in the church, so to speak, I know we're in the Y, but you know what I mean. Um, We've seen Christian institutions and leaders abuse power and money in such a way that it's hard to speak with credibility on the issue as a member of the clergy. I can get why you or those in our culture would be really skeptical of this topic, so let me just assure you at the beginning of this message that Jesus, that God does not need your money and that I am not asking for your money this morning. What God wants is way bigger than that. He wants your heart. And what I'm asking for is for you to consider that the thing that your heart really longs for, that you really need, only Jesus can give you. So here's the scaffolding. Here's the outline if you want to follow along. There's a question, there's a story, and there's a wealth. There's a question from an addict in the crowd. There's a story that's going to instruct us how to not be fools. And then there's a wealth that Jesus promises that will transform our hearts. Here's the question. And the question comes from an addict. Now, you and I are not first century Jewish people, so this is not, uh, it wouldn't be a custom that we would understand. Why would you come to a rabbi in the middle of a teaching session and shout out, hey, listen, my older brother's overlooking me in the division of the family inheritance, and I want you to help me with this. This would have actually been a fairly common thing to have done to your rabbi, to say, like, we're having a family matter. In fact, there's other parts of the world in the present day where even Christian communities function in a similar way. Um, there's pastors I know in West Africa that their congregation like, doesn't make a big financial purchase without talking to the whole community. They have a radically different understanding of wealth and purchasing of goods as a community. This is, that's foreign to us. It's also foreign to us for if you, you probably wouldn't show up and ask me to mediate. Well, in this culture, they did. So he asked the question. Now, I'm using the term addict, and I'm trying to be really intentional about that. An addict, a junkie, somebody who typically has some weird dependence upon a substance or something for their own mental or physical well-being, I'm saying the question comes from an addict. Now, we don't know much about this guy's situation to judge the merit of his request, We just don't have enough evidence. I can't tell you whether or not this was a valid thing for him to ask for help for. We don't know. We don't have enough information. What we do know is that Jesus was capable of seeing beyond just the merit of the question to a motive that was out of place. And he says to the man, why are you asking me this? Why are you trying to get me to come in and sort of be the judge here? Um, Jesus discerns there's a motive, and the motive that Jesus names is greed. Now, for the sake of our understanding, I want to say the motive is greed. The motive, if I were to simplify it even more, I would say the motive is more. I need more. We have this dysfunctional relationship with stuff, with more stuff, oftentimes money, and it's an addiction. It's, if we had another name for it, we might call it affluenza. The real danger, though, that Jesus wants us to see is that we don't see it in ourselves. 
We may see it in other people, like Jesus says, we see it in this guy, but we don't tend to see this problem in and of our own selves, and that's, that's the danger of it. And so the command of Christ here at the beginning of the story is he says, watch out, be on the lookout, be aware that this is happening in your own hearts, not just in the man who's asking the question. There was a New York Public Library commissioned a series of books on the seven deadly sins, um, of which greed is one. And the author Phyllis Tickle was asked to write that particular book, great little book, and here she says about greed, she says it's a sin that we see readily in others, but we rarely acknowledge as our own, and therein lies its power. We don't see it in ourselves. We see it in others, but we don't see it in ourselves. Um, There was a young man, he was only 30, that worked on Wall Street, some sort of hedge fund type of guy, and he ends up... um, making so much money, by the time he's 30, he gets a bonus, and his bonus, his bonus, not his his actual paycheck, but his bonus that year was $3.6 million. And the opening line from his New York Times article, which is entitled, For the Love of Money, I know that's a movie, but he wrote an article entitled, For the Love of Money. The opening line reads like this. Listen to what he says. He says, in my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million, and I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old. I had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no big philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason that an alcoholic needs another drink. I was an addict. So as soon as you hear this guy, you go, man, that guy has a problem, right? Like he got almost a $4 million bonus and he's kind of miffed and frustrated by that. Like he has a problem. I don't have a problem. He has a problem. This is the problem with wealth and greed is that you and I, you and I both think, well, if, if we, you know, a million-dollar annual bonus, I would, that'd be enough. That's what we think. We don't see it in ourselves. And so Jesus' first instruction to us is to watch out, be, be on the lookout, pay attention to how this works in your own heart and soul is the first instruction that he offers to us. As soon as you hear him describe that bonus, you begin to think that, well, I'm different than him. You and I aren't different than him. of Americans in a Pew Research study, 98% of Americans said that they were middle class or below. 75% of Americans claimed to be financially insecure in a Barna study. We live in one of the wealthiest countries ever to exist, and 75% of our population feels that they are financially insecure. In the 1970s, I found out uh, through reading that there were just a few storage units, you know, like public storage, U-Haul, the places that are climate-controlled, garages that, that you don't, they're, they're not part of your home, but because we have so much stuff, we pay money to get more square footage over there so that we have a place to keep all of our stuff. I know some of you are elbowing somebody next to you. Um, So in the 1970s, there were a few. Today, today, there are more storage units than McDonald's and Starbucks facilities combined. It's a $20 billion a year industry in revenue. We we got a lot of stuff. If you've ever been in community with somebody, particularly a Christian, from the three-fourths world, it used to be called the third world, and they come and they stay here with you and they do life with you in the flowerplex, they are very quickly going to see that we have an inordinate dysfunctional relationship to our stuff. We don't see it in ourselves, but it's in us. 
And it's not just a problem in our nation. It's Greed isn't just an American problem, it's a human problem. And that's why Jesus says, watch out, be, be on the lookout, be aware of every form of greed. Okay, well, that, that's actually more than just money. Be aware of every form of greed, he says in verse 15. So covetousness, wanting something that God has not yet or doesn't give me, is a human problem. And it's not just about money. It could be about anything. It could be anything. So his question, the question from an addict, it reveals that there's an addiction not only in him, but in all of us. And Jesus says, be on the lookout. And then he tells the story. So there's a question from an addict, and then here's the story. And the story is meant to instruct us to not be foolish. He introduces this talented guy who's willing to do whatever it takes whatever it takes to accumulate wealth. He's an entrepreneur and he, he finds himself sort of consumed in his work. He's working 15 hours a day. He joins the professional organization. He works weekends, he works nights. He's a maximizer, this guy. And really, if you've been around North Texas very long, it's not hard to imagine what a life like this would look like. Uh, John Ortberg, pretty well-known pastor and writer, has an amazing a uh, whole piece on this particular passage um, entitled, It All Goes Back in the Box. I had to think about the title. Uh, if you're curious, a great, great passage, uh, homily, and, and he ended up writing a book about it. Um, and he, he modernizes this guy's story. So I'm going to borrow from Ortberg just for a moment. And he goes, even while he's not working, he finds himself, his mind is sort of drifting towards work. His occupation has become a preoccupation, Ortberg writes. He convinces himself that he'll become more available to the important people in his life. Maybe in six months or so, when things slow down. That's one of this man's favorite phrases, when things slow down. He's a bright guy. He's the man in Jesus' story, yet he never seems to notice that things never slow down. And his wife eventually gets fed up with his preoccupation with work. It, it comes to 11.30, midnight, one night, and she says, I'm going up to bed. Are you coming? No, no, I've got, I've got a little bit more to do. Something wakes her up in the middle of the night and she goes down to check on him to find this man is totally sacked out of sleep on his laptop at the dinner table. And she's fed up with it. You know, this is just childish. He would rather stay up and work himself to exhaustion than come and get a good night's rest. And she tries to wake him up and actually she can't wake him up. She goes to check his pulse. There's no pulse. She calls 911. They come and they pronounce the man dead on his laptop in the middle of the night, working himself to that. had a heart attack or something. Now, his death was really big news in the financial community. Forbes wrote about it. The Wall Street Journal wrote about it. And they said a lot of nice things about him at his funeral. And then they left, and they all left the cemetery. And the angel of the Lord comes in the darkness of night and with a finger inscribes one word that sums up this man's life. And you know what that word is? Fool. Fool. This is the story Jesus tells his disciples, you fool. That's strong language. Why, why would God use, why would Jesus use such a strong word to diagnose this for all of his skills, for all of his ability to look into the future and sort of forecast where things are going? He never took the time to consider that the most important things in life I'm overlooking. He didn't even consider the possibility that death would come sooner than he might expect. He was so busy making a living, Ortberg writes, that he had no time 
to make a life. Now, I'm gonna argue there's two illusions that lead to a foolish life. And they're four-letter words. You ready? Here's the first one. Mine. Mine. Here's the first illusion of this man's life, that the source of all his wealth, that the source of his accomplishment was somehow his own doing. I want you to compare and contrast this week as you reflect on this teaching of Jesus, a little word that Jesus uses. He tells us the story in verse 16, I believe it is. He says, the land or the ground of a certain rich man produced plentifully. Interesting. There's something that this man is standing on that he's not even aware that he's standing on, that he's maximizing, that God created and that God provided And I want you to contrast this land, this ground that is God's, and it was his creation, and it was his gift to this man with the pronouns that he uses to describe his life. Because if you look at the pronouns, what's going to happen is that everything he says is I and my, my, my. Remember the, the Finding Nemo cartoon? And I think they're seagulls, and they come up on the the pelican and the pelican's trying to enjoy a lunch, and all the seagulls are going, mine, 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 mine. I'm really trying to wake a few of you up because you look like you're a little bit sleepy. We were um, out to lunch. He was much younger than he is now. I pick on Tucker all the time when I preach. I got to figure that out. That can't be good. And my sub, something's wrong there, that, that, but he's just too good to tell you the story. To not, I got to include it. So we're, we're eating at a restaurant that's known for its french fries, Okay. And I'm trying at the time to not eat French fries. So I didn't get any of my own French fries, but he had loads of French fries and I wanted some in the middle of his meal. Now, um, Tucker is like, look, firstborn eldest son, he fits the stereotype. It's like, this is mine stuff. So I'm like, hey, Tucker, I think he was like three. Can, can Can I have some of your French fries? No, you can't have any of my French fries. I'm like, I paid for the meal. I I didn't want to come to this restaurant today, but we're here. And so I'd like a few French fries. No, dad, these are mine. You can go get, I'm thinking I have enough money. It doesn't take much at this restaurant. I have enough money to buy all the fries you and I could ever eat at this meal, but you won't give me two or three of these fries. But in this moment, he has this sense that like all there is in the world is this that's right here in front of me. And and this ethic of scarcity that any three-year-old is bound to have, because that's their little world, is that that I must protect that which is right in front of me. And that's about the maturity of this, this very successful, from a material, worldly perspective, man that Jesus is telling the story about. Mine, my, my, my. I know what I'll do with my wealth. He's living under the illusion of mine. The reality is, none of it's his. He doesn't own anything. Uh, I, I became friends with a very successful businessman in North Texas a few years back, and it was fascinating to compare. He, he really fit the bill of this, this person in this passage. And I remember trying to have a conversation with him that it actually wasn't all his hard work that had obtained all this wealth. You want to pick a fight with a salty, successful millionaire businessman and say that it wasn't just you that did this. Um, He didn't have a concept of the ground that came before him, the opportunities that God put in front of them, that he wasn't born in the 10th century in the forest of Guinea, 
He was born in the 20, 21st century and had all kinds of opportunity given to him. And even the, the body, the health that was his to use, to work and to strive and the middle capacities that were his, this is all the ground that God had laid in front of him. It wasn't just his. Of course, he had worked hard. I'm not questioning that. Or that this man wasn't a hard worker but he didn't have a concept of the ground. He lived under the illusion of mine. Now, the second illusion is more. Mine and more. Here's the second illusion, more. The second lie that this man and that you and I are prone to live for, and Jesus is telling a story that instructs us not to live like this. We, we ought not to live as if this world is mine. We also ought not to live into this lie that more will be enough. You see, greed Greed isn't just excessive spending so that you can have more. I think I've, I typically have that view of it. It's like people who just spend a lot of money to get things because things make them happy. It could be the other side, which is just sort of slavish saving. That's what this guy was doing. He was a slave actually to acquiring wealth, not necessarily spending the wealth, but acquiring the wealth so that then he would feel secure. He thought there would come a day where he would have enough that his heart would be content, that he would be able to relax, that he would be able to enjoy life. He believed in this lie that more would be enough. Do you guys hear that somebody bought the winning ticket? Uh, this big old lottery th thing that was in the news this last week, that there was a ticket sold, I believe, in Illinois. Um, I don't know if anybody's claimed it yet. I'm not that up to date, but I know there was a $1.3 billion lottery ticket purchased in Illinois uh, over the last week or a few days. Um, and if they take the lump sum, they'll get $780 million. Now, as I say that, I don't know about you, but when I read those numbers, I thought, nah, that, that would work. That would be enough. <laughs> that, I, I think that would be enough. Now, hang on. This is what makes us all fools. The story of lottery winners is not a fairy tale. It's a nightmare. Read them. It's very rare that that goes well. You and I are no different than this man we believe in this lie of mine and we believe in this lie of more. It's a human problem. And Jesus tells this story, but we get to see it in our own culture played out time and time again of people who really, they have every reason to be content, to, to be at a place where it's like, oh, I'm good. And yet they're just striving after more. And uh, a time before our own, the great, successful businessman, Howard Hughes, in the 1900s, all he wanted was more. More fame, more pleasure. He was a filmmaker, he had a lot of wealth, and he really believed that if he could just get more, his life would be enough. And at the end of his life, we read about a man who's emaciated, whose skin is colorless, whose chest is sunken, whose teeth are rotten from addiction, he died believing in the myth of more. You know, if I really wanted to shower my wife, Jennifer, with gifts, for example, and I said to Jen, I want you to go to, I had to think about this because, you know, brick and mortar stores are like becoming a thing of the past. I think you can still go to North Park, though, and have a pretty good time if you had an unlimited budget. 
And if I were to say, hey, I want you to take four hours and uh, here's an unlimited budget and I want you to buy uh, everything that your heart could long for, every shoe, every hat, every piece of jewelry, every pair of athletic shoes, every pair of athletic clothing um, that she could buy and she would go and she would spend this four hours. Do you think that would be enough? Do you think that would bring real happiness? We'll never know. That's not ever going to happen that she's ever going to get four hours of unlimited spending. Now, the, the point that we get to see time and time again is Jesus is showing us how far do you have to keep traveling down that road to realize where it leads? It doesn't lead to enough. He's believing, you and I believe the lie of more will be enough. It, it won't. More stuff, more wealth uh, will not be enough. Pause. Go down to the footnotes of the sermon. If somebody is living below the poverty level in North America, there is a need for more provision in their life. Okay? That's a footnote that I'm not going to explore. I don't mean that it would bring their heart content. I mean that they're really struggling and suffering economically in this world. Okay? That's a whole different conversation. But the illusions that Jesus confronts are the illusions of mine and the illusions of more. We're blind to the, the power that this has over us. And so Jesus tells this story with the hope that it would instruct us, that it would help us to see how the pattern works, how the, how the illusion works. And then he goes on to say some things that today, as I end and next week, we get to explore. Because the good news is that there is a healing available for our greedy hearts. And he begins to describe a wealth that will transform our hearts. Now, I'm going to be brief on this because we get to pick it right back up next week. And the famous passage where, you know, he says, see the lilies of the field and how they neither toil nor spin. Um, he ends up pointing to the treasure principle. If you've never heard that, whatever your heart treasures, um, whatever you treasure there, your heart will be also that treasure principle comes up next week. But here, here's, I want to point to it. And then I want to give you one assignment this week. So here, I want, let, me, let me point to it. Verse 32. I know we didn't read it, but if you skip down in your own Bibles or you look up on the screen, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Isn't it interesting how much fear is what's motivating our preoccupation with stuff? He says, don't be afraid, little flock. He's being a good shepherd to them, his sheep, and to us. And look at this next little phrase. He says, for the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Wow. This word, pleased, is the same word that he uses at the baptism of Jesus. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. This abundant provision of God's love for you in a deeply personal way is poured out for you to such an extent that it's not only enough, it's more than enough. It's, it's abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. And this, this abundance of God towards you and towards me becomes the thing that transforms our hearts and it restores a right relationship to material possessions in this world. It's a wealth that transforms. Now, that's the source. There's no other source that transforms our greedy hearts. That's the source. It's his love poured out for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see how it works? That God's love poured out for you on the cross is God delighting. We don't tend to believe this. This is the gospel story. And you and I need daily, hourly reminders that this is our inheritance. That, That God is pleased. He takes delight. It gives him great joy to give. Interesting word. Not earn, not achieve, not perform, but to receive the very kingdom of God. And this this wealth that he gives to his children, it sets us free from the greed of this world. Now, that's the source. There's a strategy, and it does involve generosity. We'll get to that next week, but here's your homework. How do you know what your heart really treasures and loves? Um, This man was foolish because even though he was rich in this world, he was not rich towards God, Jesus says. How, How do you know what it is that your heart treasures? Here's the assignment. I want you this week to find out what is it that you really treasure. So the question is, what do I treasure? And here's a really simple way that will help you find out. Wherever you find your material resources flowing freely, that'll point you to your treasure. So for me, um, don't laugh. This is serious stuff. She's laughing at me. Uh, it's Jen. She can laugh at me. She, so, so for me, um, I grew up loving sports, but we didn't spend a lot of money on sporting goods. When I walk into Dick's Sporting Goods, there is no budget, especially as it relates to my children. And I go, okay. So look at your credit card statement or your debit card or your checking account or however it is that you tally, wherever you find your resources flowing most freely without like, there. I don't have a budget in mind when it comes to you fill in the blank. This begins to be a way of interrogating and finding out what is it that my heart really treasures? My money flows freely towards my children. At times in a way that is unchecked and it makes an idol. How about you? The assignment this week is to get clear on what you treasure and not because I want you to feel ashamed. It's because I want you and I both to be freed up from idols that actually are burdens. They, they, you can't enjoy the kingdom, the kingdom of God that's being gifted if you're filling up your appetite with little pleasures that won't really satisfy. So the assignment this week is what, what do I really treasure? The way to find that out is look look to where your resources flow most freely and you'll find your treasure. Now, I didn't come up with that. That's right here in Luke 12. Uh, For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows what you treasure and vice versa. Now, we're out of time for today. So next week, we'll pick that up. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, would you, in the way that only you can as we come to your table, would you invite us, your children, to receive the kingdom that you take delight and pleasure in giving to us? Holy Spirit, may we experience your love poured out for us in Christ Jesus. We give you thanks and praise and pray that um, we would come to the place where we would believe that you are better that there's no one like you, that there is nothing in this world that compares with you. Transform our hearts to believe that. Transform our lives to be a testimony to your kingdom 
as Church of the Resurrection here in this North Texas culture. May we be a city on a hill in how we relate to our resources. We pray for your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.